to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. Welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to disaster recovery, business continuity, security, crisis management, COVID, anything that helps you, your organization, or your community prepare for, respond to, and overcome adverse situations. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please feel free. You can find me on LinkedIn. I am the only Alex Fullick there. And I'm really easy to find, and I do respond to everything I get. Uh, one quick announcement I will be speaking, actually, co presenting a keynote speech at BCI Hybrid World later this year uh, with Margaret Millett in London. And we will actually be there in person. Fingers crossed, nothing changes. As you can see by my screen, if you're watching on YouTube, it's that time again. It's time to talk with Regina Phelps. Regina, welcome back. Alex, what a surprise. It's so great to see you. <laughs> <laughs> One of these days we'll actually meet in person. You know, I'm waiting for that, but I'm going to be in Canada in November, so I, I'm going to expect to right. see you again. That's right, and you'll only be down the road from me at the Continuity Resilience Today conference, So, uh, I, and I plan on being there. So we are Good. Gonna, it'll be a while, but we will eventually meet up in person. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I look forward to it. <laughs> me too. So we've got our usual uh, agenda here and some points, um, and hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll actually finish our talk on ransomware exercises, which we've done <laughs> the last two uh, episodes. So I know. Uh, we've really drugged that one out, haven't we? Yeah, but it, we've been sharing a lot of information about that. Right. And I, I really hope people are paying attention because ransomware and cybersecurity is still such a hot topic, and you've Absolutely. been sharing a lot of information, so people have been missing out. Shame on them. <laughs> so let's start with um, a quick update on where we are with all these, you know, I, I, I kind of just want to say COVID, but there seems to be so much more going on. So right. why don't I just say that? What's going on with all this health stuff? <laughs> well, you know, it's kind of funny because, you know, the last, well, for the last two years, if people have been watching me on your channels, I've been talking about nothing to diseases. And, and after a while, people may be thinking that that's all I do. It's actually technically only a small part of what we do, yeah. but it's been, it has been a lot. And I'm going to talk about several diseases today quickly uh, so we can get into finishing that ransomware exercise discussion. And I want to start with COVID, our favorite topic, which as you and I have discussed many times now, many people around the world are kind of thinking it's over, but it's not. And the coronavirus is incredibly resilient and uh, it's the babies of Omicron that are now causing a surge across the world, actually. Uh, there are many versions now. BA1 is the original Omicron. BA2 is the second baby. Then there's BA2.1, 2.1, which has been more, more contagious than all of the others. And now there is BA4 and BA5. And now BA5 is actually about 30% more contagious than BA 2.1, 2.1, which was about 30% more contagious than BA 1, and do the math on all of that. So right now, there's actually a surge going on in many places in the world. You know, historically, we've had kind of a, not predictable, but we've sort of been able to see how it moves around. And here right now in the world, we're seeing actually a spread in lots of places simultaneously. So both South, uh, South Africa and the African continent, we're seeing it in places in South America, Brazil, Chile, uh, Peru. Uh, we're seeing it also in uh, the United States and many different states, all the way from Florida, California, parts of the Midwest, uh, the Northeast, and in uh, China, which of course is really on fire still, and in parts of Southeast Asia. So BA5 is driving surges across the world. And although it is technically, you could say, uh, not as severe. The only reason you can say that is because there are so many people that are becoming infected that just by 
the way of the math, we have more hospitalizations and more deaths, and we have a lot of immunity. But the problematic issue about BA4 and 5 is that if you got Omicron earlier in the year, the current studies show that you are not protected at all against BA4 or 5. So that means you easily could still get infected and the vaccines are not specific for the Omicron variant. So even if you're triple boosted in some places in the US, quadruple uh, you know, shots, that you can still actually get infected. So even though I understand that many people think this is over, it's not over. And if you have not gotten boosted and you're here in the US, I would strongly encourage you to do so, at least have three shots under your belt. And if you're over the age of 60, in some cases, I think mainly it's 50 now as well, you can get the fourth booster as well. So I would encourage you to partake in that. Uh, where are you with boosters in Canada? Are you doing four or is it you guys still just doing the, the third shot? This, mostly the third shot. Uh, boosters are still recommended for, um, I think actually people over 50 now. Um, you, you don't hear a lot as much anymore about COVID in general. So, so the, I'm going on what I heard a few weeks back was the last thing is if you, especially if you're um, older, um, if you have something like diabetes or some of those uh, other immune um, uh, issues to get your fourth shot. But I think they've also opened it up to, you know, if you are over 50, you know, and, and even if you're healthy, maybe you should go get it anyway, just in case. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm, that's where mm -hmm. it is here. Yeah, yeah. And so um, in your cases, are you seeing a surge at all in Canada? There doesn't see the last numbers I got, um, I was looking this morning, were updated uh, on June 18th. And today as we're recording is June 27th. So there didn't seem to be much of an uptake on their on their graphs at all. But, you know, things just aren't getting updated like they used to. So it's kind of hard right. to tell everything seems to be a week or two behind. Right. So at the moment, I'm going to say, no, I haven't seen or heard anything. But with a caveat, I could be wrong because I'm going on things that are already a week and a half old. Right. And here in the U.S., they're doing still daily reporting, but a huge number of people are, are not doing PCR tests and they're primarily doing home management tests. And if people are mm. positive, they're not reporting them anyplace. So uh, we really are flying blind and, blind. and until the hospitalizations increase, which they are now in the U.S., by about eight to 10%, and the deaths are also going up about eight to 10%. So between those two things, we know we're having a surge, even though our case count here in the US is about 110,000 people every day. So I imagine that could be the same also in Canada as well. It could be, We right now, well, I shouldn't say right now, again, as of the 18th, we only had just a hair over 15,000 cases a right day. across the country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, I'll, I'll, you know, from that number, things were really, really low. And maybe that's why they're not reporting as much anymore. Mm -hmm. so we could turn around and see something completely different. Right, right. All, right. all the doctors and uh, nurses and uh, uh, disease experts that used to see on TV three, four times a day on different channels, you hardly even see them now. Right, so. right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, as we've said many times, people are over it, right? Yeah, even, yeah. Even if, even if the virus is not over us. Yeah, and I, I've known some people who have, my niece uh, is just getting over uh, COVID right now. Mm -hmm. And um, I saw her posting on Facebook, oh, guess who finally got it, you know, but she's, <laughs> uh, you know, right away, it's, I'm just staying home. You know, mm -hmm. she had her shots, but so it's, but I know what to do, stay home. And I mm -hmm. think that's the way people are looking at it now. That's great. That's great. Well, for me, I'm still masking when I go out. I just was on a plane over the weekend. I was masked. I was with my husband. He was masked. And we were masked the entire time we were any place in public. But we were one of the very few. So, yeah. What yeah, I, I know. I think last month I said uh, in the grocery uh, store about 80% of people were wearing their masks. Well, I was in the grocery uh, store on the weekend. And it seems to be down to half, 40 to 50% of people still wearing masks. So it is everyone now is starting to just kind of live with it. Right, right, right. Yeah, and there's just a few of us folks that don't really want to get it. I don't want long COVID. So I'm, I'm pursuing a more cash, uh, uh, cautious uh, response. Yeah, me too. I was wearing my mask, just for the record. So <laughs> I was wearing mine, and I haven't had COVID yet, and I hope to keep it that way. Yeah, me too, me too.
Me too. Well, so let's move on to our other diseases because I want to see if we can get through all yes. of our disease conversations in the first segment. Monkey pox, which is now I want to make sure I get my numbers correct. We're at about 4,200 cases now in uh, the world. It's up to 49 countries. Uh, the World Health Organization just had a meeting on Monday, or excuse me, Friday, or today's Monday, on Friday, uh, to determine whether it would be actually considered to be a um, disease of international concern, so a public health emergency of international concern, as COVID is, as HIV is, as polio is, and they determined at this point it is not. There is a lot of unusual aspects of it, primarily because it's in so many countries, uh, it appeared all at once. The primary target of this outbreak seems to be men who have sex with men or bisexual men. However, that's not all of the people that are getting it. And so there's a lot of concern still that this could be an issue. The World Health Organization is monitoring really closely. There is sewer water analysis in many parts of the world, not just for COVID, but other diseases. And there are several places in the US, my town in particular, San Francisco, that now has monkeypox that's actually in sewer water. So what does that all mean? That means that the disease is moving around. If you were um, uh, born before 1960, your chances of having a smallpox vaccine are pretty good. Uh, they pretty much stopped that for the most part in the early 60s in the US. I'm not sure about Canada, uh, but there's probably waning immunity. So people might be getting it, uh, but having a very minor case. So what I would say to all of your listeners is, is that to stay tuned, this particular versions of smallpox, or excuse me, monkeypox and why it's so uh, been probably flying, to be honest with you, under the radar for some period of time, is that it presents very differently than the textbooks. There might be only a few little pustules, not very easily noticeable. And so it's very easy. You could be in contact with somebody that you that has it and not be aware of it. It's also uh, contagious through not just uh, uh, bodily contact, any kind of bodily fluids, but also uh, clothing, sheets, those kinds of things. And so it can be passed that way. It is not an airborne transmission like COVID, uh, but still something that we should all be thinking about and at least paying attention to, not to be concerned about like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna get monkeypox, but it's just aware that there are a lot of diseases besides COVID that are out there. In addition my, to that- My I'm, city has, has uh, just of last week, has its first case of monkeypox. Yep, yep. Well, you know, it's, it's probably gonna be everywhere. And there's a lot of dis discussion among epidemiologists that perhaps maybe what we should be doing is vaccinating any high-risk population with the actual vaccine we have, which was, is for smallpox, which is made out of a uh, derivative of monkeypox. And I, I think there's a lot of discussion going on about that now, and that may indeed happen. So what I would say to your listeners is, is you know, pay attention. Uh, listen, just follow the news, not to be nervous or excited, but just be aware. Um, there's a couple of other things I want to just talk about really briefly, and that is polio. Again, polio is one of the diseases that who follows, which is a public health um, concern across the US, across the world. Polio has been found in the sewer system in London. And it's a particular type of polio. There's basically two types of polio. There's the inactive, which means it's actually spread from person to person. And there's something called a vaccine-derived polio. And there are many parts of the world where they actually give polio vaccines that have a live attenuated virus, which means it's a very weakened form of the virus. That vaccine is not so much what actually transmits the illness, but it can actually be the... The, the, the sewage, if you will, where that polio virus gets into the sewage system and comes in contact with people who are not vaccinated. So there have been, I wanted to make sure I have the most current number of cases here. There's actually, um, oops, let me flip my page over. Yeah, in 2020, there were 959 cases of polio in the world that were actually caused by vaccine-derived polio viruses. And so this was found in London. Now you may say, well, why in London? Well, London has a large immigrant population, many people coming from Africa and other places where that type of uh, vaccine could have been used. Uh, so someone came into the country or possibly is living there 
and they actually um, have that, that, that case of polio and they must be asymptomatic. Now, because of the amount of polio that was found in the sewage system in London, they know it's not just a person, it's probably several people, they don't know who or how many, but it's something that has really put them on high alert. And there's been some speculation that they might need to start vaccinating polio, uh, giving polio vaccine to younger people who haven't had those kinds of exposures. It was considered eradicated in the UK in the 1990s. So this is kind of a big alarm issue. And it really talks to the fact that we are a global community and people are moving all over the place. So uh, you can have things that pop up like a polio vaccine derived illness uh, in places that hasn't seen a case of polio in a very long time. So currently right now, they do not believe there's actually transmission going on in the community of any, of any note, but they're very concerned because there's just a little bit too much of this virus in the sewer water to say that it's a person, it's probably persons in London with polio. Yeah, when I saw that article uh, or a article, not necessarily the same one you saw, but when I heard that, I kind of went polio in London. What? I got rid of that decades ago. What do you? What, that it, it it surprised me. And right. It surprised me more than uh, finding out my city has monkeypox or has right. a case of monkeypox. Mm -hmm. You know, the polio. I thought that was one thing we finally got rid of. Right. You know, right. and we're making headway into other areas, you know, that still had it. So hearing, hearing that was just, wow, surprised me. It is shocking, right? And I think many Western <clears throat> countries in particular, which haven't seen really a case of polio in a long time, it's surprising. Now, polio sadly has not been eradicated. At one point, it was really, really, really close. Uh, and it was only remaining in Afghanistan and uh, parts of Pakistan. But what was happening is that the Taliban and others were actually killing uh, individuals who were vaccinating people. And they were saying that the vaccine was going to kill the children. And so uh, they were not able to eradicate. We were so, so close. so close. I mean, within just a few villages of actually stopping it, just like smallpox. But that didn't happen. And so now it's actually in quite a few countries again. So a lot of the Mid Middle East, but also in Africa. And that was also further uh, hindered in its elimination by the, um, uh, the war uh, and also uh, the pandemic. The war has stopped a lot of vaccinations happening like in Ukraine and other areas in, the, um, uh, in Eastern Europe. And also the, the pandemic really impacted its distribution of vaccines not just in Africa, but basically globally. So there's now about 25 countries that have actually active cases of polio, which is shocking, shocking. It is, and it's all because of us, again. Right. I don't know how many times you and I, you and I have had this conversation where a lot of these issues are caused by us and right. our own stupidity and things. You know, I'll leave it at that. Right, right. And before we end this segment, I just want to say one more thing about one more disease in case your listeners are just wondering, what about avian flu? Yes. So avian flu is still all over the world. Uh, Canada and the, U and the U.S. have quite a bit of it because of the migration of birds. And so there are four major flyways. There's the, the Pacific Flyway, there's the Central Flyway, there's the Mississippi Flyway, and there's the Atlanta Flyway. And so birds uh, are moving up and down from uh, North America all the way up in your region, all the way down into South America. And now there's avian flu in all of those flyways. So why that is a problem is because it's infecting uh, domesticated poultry, primarily large commercial poultry. Uh, operations. And so there's lots of culling still of chickens and turkeys in the U.S. I'm imagining that would be happening in Canada as well. Yeah, happened here too. Yeah. And so that's going to uh, be an impact both uh, just make your, your grocery bill even higher than it is already. But, but I would just also say that uh, knock on wood, there's only been one case of a human actually getting avian influenza. And it was a person that was culling birds in the United States and Colorado. So knock on wood that this is not transmitted to any other humans, because the concern, of course, is if it does go to a human and mutates in the human and begins to pass person to person, we should all know what that means. Mm -hmm. And we don't really want an avian flu pandemic on top of the coronavirus pandemic 
screening with monkeypox and a little bit of polio. Yeah, that's all we need. <laughs> well, and on, on that, that note, <laughs> on that bright and cheery note, <laughs> we've come to the end of our first segment. We're talking with Regina Phelps. And when we come back, we're going to continue our talk on uh, ransomware exercises and tests. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Today we are talking with Regina Phelps. And uh, Regina, I think this is our third episode. We're going to try and finish and recap uh, your talk on uh, ransomware exercises. Great. Well, I'm going to dive right in because I, I, our goal is that we're going to finish this this session, <laughs> or just you know, it's, it's this or die, right? Yeah. Um, so what I want to do is I'm actually backing up a couple of sites from where we left off, um, so I can have a continuous stream of consciousness here. And really, what I'm talking about here is what I call an exercise plan. So when you are the exercise designer, one of the things you should be building in the, all of the documents you create for an exercise is something called an exercise plan which includes a lot of key issues. And of course, one of the overarching things you always wanna have is what's the goal of the exercise. And this is defined by what I call the, what I call the silly little question, which answers the question, why are we doing this? Uh, and I, I know we talked about this in the last two segments, but I cannot emphasize how important this is. If you don't know why, um, that means you're not um, being able to design an effective exercise. And the why, is not because my boss told me to. The why is, well, what's your boss concerned about? Maybe they're concerned the fact that your business continuity plans don't address a sustained technology outage, or maybe they think the communications plans aren't adequate to manage a ransomware attack, or maybe they're concerned and interested of whether executives would play a ransom and so on. The more you ask the question, why are we doing this? It tells you everything that you need to know in designing an exercise. And in particular, it automatically gives you the goal of the exercise, very likely all of the objectives, and really points you in the direction of the kind of injects that you would design. So the goal is super important. Uh, and sometimes people might have some covert kind of goals, but the overarching goal is something that's pretty straightforward. So. I always talk to all the key players in it when I design an exercise, which could be your crisis leader or incident commander, depending on whatever you call your person. It could be some key business unit leaders. It could be obviously the, the CISO, people in information security, your executives. I want to know the answer to the question why. And then I design the overall goal and everything else. So this would be an example of a goal that I might have in a cyber exercise. Assess the ability of the crisis management team to manage a cybersecurity breach or a ransomware event or whatever you were trying to really focus the attention on. Uh, we use lots and lots of artificialities. I love that word, word because it means everything that you make up to create a painful experience for our, our folks. So artificialities are all those things that are blatantly not true and, and they're helpful because you might want to change the date or the time. Maybe you want it to be month end, quarter end. Maybe you want to have it around a release date if you're releasing a product or a service. Uh, you want it to be 
Well, and for me, by the way, when I say the best date, it means the most painful date for the people who are having the exercise. I'd like them to actually have to work hard at this, right? I might take out equipment and make things not available. I might remove people artificially from the exercise. I really want to try and push uh, as many things as I possibly can. So I have often a lot of our artificialities. Um, uh, this is a, some examples of things that I've done recently, like the migration to AWS uh, of our primary data center is complete. Many of my clients are moving to AWS. They have, there are a lot of issues in putting everything in the cloud and now people are starting to understand that. I'm not saying that having stuff in the cloud is not good, but it has challenges for recovery. It has challenges for assessments. Uh, in some cases, you don't even know where everything is because they can be split between multiple data centers. And so you need to understand a lot before you go to the cloud. And many of my clients have discovered it's actually more expensive and more problematic. They're still doing it, but it is, it is not a, any, an easy or free ride, so to speak. Uh, you might take people out on vacation. Uh, you might say that there are certain people that aren't avail available and maybe they're on your crisis team, maybe they're the business unit, maybe they're people in information security. And I always find out who those people are. And then I blanketly say that people with certain letters of their last name are not available. So look at that. Oh my gosh, we took the F out. Alex Fulick is not available to help us. So I try and make that more mm -hmm. challenging so that they actually have to work through that because everybody has you know, certain people that if they're not there, people go, oh my gosh, what would we do? Yeah, I'm yeah. taking those people out. And then things like changing the scenario date. Those are very common things that we often do in, uh, in, a, in an exercise. Um, so let's talk about developing injects. So when you start in, with an exercise, you start with the baseline narrative, but what moves the story forward are what are called exercise injects. So think of them as different chapters in the book pushing different issues, running through all of those whys, you know, so whether it's, will they pay the ransom or what's our insurance coverage, or uh, we don't have plans to, to continue our work uh, minus technology, all of those things are driving the kinds of injects that we're gonna create. So, and, as, and, and as we talked about earlier, the way I design exercises are through design teams. So these are being designed by the business unit design team. So, um, this inject is like, think of it like a chapter of a book. And that's the key thing to think about. And so they actually should basically give people information and they should always ask a question. It should make them do something because in an exercise, I want them to actually have to make a decision. I want them to do something. And so your job is to push them to that. You may say, Can you well, give an example of how you would word something yeah. like that. Yeah. So, um, so the question might be something like, um, so let's say, uh, let's say that you think that you've actually lost employee data. And so what you get, one of the injects into the exercise might be, we've, we're looking at our logs and we think we've actually, uh, uh, there's been some uh, HR data exfiltrated. Uh, who's, what should we do about telling the employees? Okay. So the question is, you know, okay, we, the data has been exfiltrated. Well, there's a whole, actually a whole zillion things you could ask, but one of them might be, when should we tell employees? How should we tell employees? Uh, who's going to do that? Who's going to direct them, you know, develop the messaging, that kind of thing. So you start with a baseline problem. You keep giving them additional problems. But the reason you ask them a question is that I want them to do something. And, and in many exercises, people will give them injects and they should do something. But because it's an exercise, they don't always do something. And I leave nothing to chance. My job is to push them, to make them have to work through things. And I really want them to do it. Um, so I, at this case, if I, the example was, we have data exfiltration of HR information. W when should we be talking to our employees and what should we say? Okay, there's some two decisions right there that need to be made. That's gonna go off to the HR executive about making the decision about when we're gonna tell these people and there should be, that goes to the comms people who should be writing the comms about what they're gonna say. So there's a twofer out of that, right? Okay. Um, uh, sometimes they can just provide background information, but an inject to me is of great value in an exercise. So we're delivering them and we're always asking them a question. So I'm not just not giving them background information. The inject will give them information and will ask them a question always. 
Uh, so when we look at injects, what we're looking at is that we design them and we'll, we'll design them on the equivalent of a spreadsheet or a, a Word document that's tabled. And it looks like this. It's got the time it's going to get delivered. It has the caller name. And we use real names. I want this to feel like when, when Alex got this inject, it was coming from Regina Phelps. He knows who she is. And she's going to ask a specific question. I just don't want to say, you know, ABC customer. Well, that's not going to get anybody excited. I want it to be somebody who's going to go like, oh, my God, did you see who we just got an inject from? That's what I'm looking for. Uh, how is it going to be transmitted? Uh, in virtual exercises, we deliver everything by email. And I can, I'll talk more about that in a bit. Uh, in the old days, when we were actually in the room, we could just hand them a piece of paper individually with the inject. Or in functional exercises, I have sim teams actually calling them in. Uh, the only time, frankly, you should ever deliver injects um, by slides is the first time you ever do an exercise with that team. And after the first time, you should never do that again. Delivering injects by slides is incredibly <clears throat> not helpful. First of all, you're telling everybody everything. I don't know about you, Alex, but any crisis I've ever helped my clients manage, no one ever stands in front of us with an LCD projector showing <laughs> everybody what's going on. That's not how it works. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> right, right. So it does not help them determining who needs to know something or, oh my gosh, I'm the only one that knows this. Who do I tell? Is it big enough? I should tell everybody. Do I only tell one person? Do I tell nobody? Blah, blah, blah. So help them learn their role, help them learn what other people do by giving it only to them. Uh, then it has the context of the actual inject. And sometimes if we're delivering these live, we'll actually have acting notes, you know, be a cranky reporter, be a nice reporter or whatever. <laughs> so this is what our, our a very common inject sample looks like that we designed for people. So essentially what you'll see is it has the call number, it's got the time it's going to get routed. It'll tell you who it's going to get routed to because these are all de delivered individually. And then we'll have the caller name. And again, as I mentioned earlier, I'm looking for actual real names. And then we'll have the text of the inject. And so these are all samples to give you people an idea. So the first one says like two of my sales staff here at the office, we would actually name them. Just told me they got some kind of message on their screen to million a million bucks in order to get their data back. Is this some type of prank? If so, it's not very funny, right? So this is a report of somebody actually calling in. It would probably be going routed to the IT department or to a business unit, and it would say exactly what the deal was. Uh, in this particular case, in the second one, the Chicago customers are swamping tech support because they're getting error messages. And so they're basically, it's a data issue. Like, you know, what do we tell these people? Uh, number three, we're hearing lots of, seeing lots of social media posts from customers. Uh, they're unable to uh, close or fund loans because you're having some sort of data beach problem. What can you tell us and when will this problem be fixed? Um, and so uh, this could be like a number four could be obviously from some kind of executive or maybe even a board member. It looks like this is getting pretty serious, isn't it? Should we just pay the ransom so we can get our data back? And so those are sort of samples of what you might expect to see in a typical exercise. When we design these things, we are working with the design team and they are helping us design very specific injects uh, so that it will make everybody in that room have what I call one of the oh my God moments. So the key thing that you need to remember in an exercise is that this is all a world of made belief. Made, made belief. You are the only one that knows what's going on. So in a, in a well-designed exercises, the players only know what you tell them. And if you don't tell them, they're not going to know. So you have to do all of this. And so what I would say to anybody who's looking to design exercises that your job is that you are the holder of the vision. If you don't know what's going on and you are then not communicating it, no one else does. So that's what you wanna think about always in the back of your mind as you're going through an exercise. One of the key components um, that makes in particular, I think our exercise is different than most people's is that my, what I know from many, working with many, many, many executives is that the biggest fear they have is that this will become public and it will ruin their reputation and their brand. Now, as you probably well know, the vast majority of companies can have a, a ransomware attack or some other kind of breach. And if data is not exfiltrated or exposed in any way, they don't have to tell a soul. 
and the vast majority of them do not. So every single exercise that we do when reputation and brand is one of the drivers of why I'm doing it, I will make sure in the exercise, we out them. Now, what does that mean? We don't really out them really, because that would be a career limiting move for me, <laughs> but we actually, <laughs> right? We actually create a perpetrator who actually is after them. Uh, and they actually start to post tweets. We don't really put it on Twitter, but we, my tech guy makes it look like it's on Twitter. Uh, we do a lot of weird avatars. We do a lot of weird kind of things that are gonna attract attention. And the purpose behind that is I want the local news station of the, where that company is headquartered to actually get interested, call them up, and then it will continue to expand. And then we're gonna have some sort of national uh, broadcast, usually on a Bloomberg station. And they're all, all the videos that we create are look like the real deal. And you'd swear to God that that station had, had actually picked up your story. The reason I do that is I want the executives, I want the board of directors, and I want anybody else involved with the communications of this incident to do it, write the stuff, decide what they're going to do, determine their strategy in real time. Well, I guess that also helps. I, I just want to say is how they would or potentially feel in a real situation, even though they know they may be sitting across the table from you, right. you know, in, in a test, but by showing these videos, you get them to actually feel the way they would feel if it wasn't a test. Absolutely. And, and sometimes that also helps decide who should be the decision maker, who should right. be people, are the right people there? I will tell you, this is what I call the, oh my God moment. Because when people actually start to think that this is really happening, they, I mean, they feel that weight in their stomach and they start to sweat. I mean, I've had clients of mine call me like a month later saying like, Regina, I haven't slept a wink since the last time you did this exercise. And I, I, I'm not trying to make them insomniacs, but I'll tell you, that's when stuff happens because people understand how bad it can be. Otherwise, the worst thing you could ever do as a designer or an exercise uh, um, facilitator is to make the exercise simple and the worst thing you could ever do is to fix it at the end. I want to leave them crying at the end of my exercise. I know I've said that to you before, but it's true. And I will tell you that changes behavior. I have seen that in every one of my clients. Some of them have been, you know, very cavalier. You know, we got this, we got this, we got this. And then we do an exercise of which they're left, you know, in a puddle of tears and things change overnight. That's what I'm looking for. I'm not looking to be nice and friendly. I'm looking to make a difference in the company and I can do that. Uh, and I've, we've done it over and over and over again. So our hacker always exposes them. And um, well, you could do that in a blog. So for example, uh, uh, Brian Krebs, which is the last guy on the end of the slide, we, use, we simulate Brian Krebs all the time. He's a very famous, I'm sure as you know, cybersecurity investigator. He's outed several of my clients. Uh, and he also you know, has a great blog followed by many, many, many people. You get covered on Brian's blog, you know, they're writing about you in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal that afternoon. So we do blogs, we do hacker um, videos, we do tweets, we'll do postings on Facebook. We also will simulate Brian. Our goal is to make this a highly public event because every executive says this is their biggest concern, but if you never say anything, you never have to practice. What are the communications that you're gonna be sending out? How do you respond to all those reporters? What happens when Twitter and Facebook are just alive with complaining about you? That's what I want them to feel. But, and you can do this in an exercise that's well-designed because when you make it public, it advances uh, and activates the crisis communications plans and they have to produce stuff in real time. Don't tell me what you would write, write it. Uh, that's important. It will engage the executives and make them sweat like you've never seen. It makes everybody in the room anxious. That's actually a good thing. And it will engage every single stakeholder by making it public. Uh, and, and again, the idea of utilizing videos in particular is really helpful. So um, I know that not everybody has a budget to do uh, videos like a new, like we do in our, in our firm. But if you have the ability, you could even actually, and I'm gonna show you a very simple uh, video that my um, AV guy did for me that just sort of gives you a sense of how you could actually do one pretty easily. 
uh, it does give a sense of reality and it invites them to really um, get further into this word world of make-believe that you've created. And it really gives people the sense of what could actually happen. And so um, we mock up, we have tons of radio broadcast. We'll do radio broadcasts, television broadcasts. We'll do press releases. We'll do video footage, we'll do email, we'll do, we'll paste up articles from the New York Times, um, all of that stuff to make people realize that. Uh, this is an example of how we've actually done this with Krebs. So this is the header of Krebs at the top. And this is an actual example of how we've actually uh, created something. It says exercise only on as that watermark. Uh, and whether, you know, it says ABC company, you know, it's, you know, blah, 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 blah. And here we are, um, we're now they're asking $120 million. So this is a, this is, allows us to actually, and anybody who knows Krebs, especially the info, InfoSec people, they just go, oh my God, not on Krebs. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, you're so great. So this is what a video would look like. And this is a very simple one, but it's a really great example of uh, what you could do. So if you imagine you want to do a video and you want to create a perpetrator video, you could put somebody in, in some sort of, you know, kind of a costume, if you will. So they're not, it's not, um, not easy to discern who they are. You can disguise the voice when you record it and you could do simply a very simple threat. And then you could paste this into anything you wanted to. You could paste it into a Twitter frame, for example. So let's see what this looks like. I'm sure you've noticed us by now. Maybe not directly yet, but that's coming soon, very soon. Who do you think's been filling all your system with anomalies for the past few days? <laughs> oh, your days are numbered. We can cripple you anytime we like with just a few keystrokes. Go ahead and look, you'll never find us. We're so deep inside your systems, your joke of a security department will never even know we're there. And you know what? It wasn't even a challenge to break in. That's the really pathetic part. <laughs> well, gotta go. We have work to do. And you better hurry. Because pretty soon, you won't be able to do anything. Have a nice day. <laughs> and for those that are listening on um, Voice America, if you head over to the YouTube channel, Preparing for the Unexpected, this will be the current video playing today. So you'll be able to go over and have a, a look and see the video. And it does look like something you would see you know, um, that you would receive. <laughs> right, right. And, 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 and we, we don't normally do this simple video, but this is uh, designed so that I have to ask my AV guide in particular to do something like this so that anybody could do it. So you could have us, you know, just disguise your face, disguise your voice, have a, you know, your iPhone camera pointed at you, do a quick threat. Then you could actually take that and you could put it inside a Twitter frame and then post it and it will scare the hell out of people. And then the game is started, right? And that's how we often start is where the, the perpetrator outs you and then everybody starts to respond, which is what we're looking at. So what I'd like to do um, before we go any farther is I'd like to talk uh, just some really quickly about virtual exercise and pointers related to that. So I des design about hundred exercises a year and I'd never done a virtual exercise before, uh, April of 2020. Now I've done about 175 of them. We've gotten really good at it. I know exactly how to do them. I would say to you, what you want to do is you want to be in a, 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 a as facile a virtual platform as possible. Probably Zoom is the easiest, but I've also done them on MS Teams. Uh, you can also do WebEx and go to meeting, but I, I'll just say to you, I, I found them a little bit more awkward. So I, whatever platform you're using though, you want to make sure that a couple of things. First of all, is you have a dedicated, AV producer who'll be running the exercise because you're going to be moving people in and out of breakout rooms and you want to make sure that you don't have to do that yourself as the facilitator. So I always want to have an AV producer. I always create a very structured AV agenda, which has every minute detailed. We start in the main room. We do introductions for five minutes. Then I do the actual introduction to the exercise, which takes about 20. We're in the main room. Uh, we already know who the, what the breakout rooms are and who goes to what breakout room. Once I give the signal, the AV producer sends them off to the breakout rooms. They have a very clear assignment from me. They're getting injects delivered by my staff to their emails in real time. And I explain all of that in the orientation. 
They're in the breakout rooms and they're doing whatever they need to do. They could be developing incident action plan objectives. They could be responding to injects. They could be doing a briefing with an executive if they get something critical. So I send them off to the breakout rooms. They're there probably around 45 minutes to an hour. Then they come back to the main room. They come back to the main room and we give them more information. There'd probably be another technology briefing by the cybersecurity team because now we know more information. There might be more instructions by the part of the incident commander. There's very likely now another news video. So it might be a news video, could be another Twitter uh, post from the perpetrator, and then they go back off to their breakout rooms. They're getting more injects delivered by email. They're also getting uh, you know, uh, other assignments given to them. Uh, they might be talking on, on their mobiles with other people that are in the exercise. When you have a virtual exercise, there's two key things. You need an AV producer. You need an AV agenda that details every bit of this. And we're marching to that agenda regardless. And I've discovered that when you have it super structured, it works really well. And in fact, some of my virtual exercises I think are better than any ones I've ever done live because they're super oh, really? structured. Yeah, they're super structured and people are in it. We're delivering all these injects. We have a lot going on. It is like, I mean, I have a full-time staff person who does nothing but push those injects out, uh, including all the social media injects, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and then they, so they move back and forth depending on the length of the exercise. We can also have other breakout rooms that are spun off on a different platform for executives. The reason it's important to have an AV producer is that if people fall out of the breakout room, the first thing they do is they end up in the main room and you need to have somebody in the main room to shoot them back off to where they go. Uh, I would also say if you do a virtual exercise, you better practice that with your AV producer so that you and the AV producer are totally in line with each other. Uh, and that's one of the things that we always do. Um, and, and it really, really helps. It's super simple, really easy. And I will say to you that virtual exercises, well-designed, are great. And I'm actually shocked to say that. After doing probably 3,500 exercises in my life, uh, the 175 I've done that have been virtual have been fabulous. Um, you know, I shocking. think there's a reason for that. Because in a real situation, people would be spread out all over the place. Right. Right. And it feels real. It feels Yeah, real. and maybe that's the reason. Well, I think you've got to design it well. I, I put, I've, heard, I've heard people complain about exercises. My clients love them. But I think it's because maybe they don't do breakout rooms or they don't know how to do them well, or they don't have clear assignments. Not, I don't know what it is why people don't like them, but uh, my clients have loved them. Um, and I may not do very many more face-to-face uh, -face anymore, which is really weird for me. Uh, <laughs> but I would say to you that uh, they're, they're a great tool and 99% of the time people are going to run these things virtually anyway. So why get people together for a complete artificiality? The last thing I'll say about this, because I want to get, get through these slides is that do not do a hybrid exercise. It's a, I've only done one of the 175 was hybrid. I would never do it again because when you have people, some people in a room and other people are remote, everybody in the room has to have a headset on. They have to be looking into their laptop. You're running it completely virtually. So, and that's really, I mean, that's really awkward. And so I will just tell you, there's sound issues. There's all kinds of things. It's better to have people remote. We've got four minutes left, believe it or not. I know I'm almost done too. <laughs> so what I would say to you is that uh, I, can, I cannot emphasize enough how important it is that you do a ransomware exercise and probably do one, frankly, once a year, because it is one of the most significant threats that the, the world has ever faced beyond the Ukraine war and COVID. Um, you gotta do a lot of research. And so what I would really encourage you to do is again, ask all the whys that I've talked about repeatedly. Uh, you have to get buy-in from your executives. Everybody needs to understand that this is gonna be awful and a mess and you're gonna be super happy. And that's what they need to say in the introductions, as I said, in the earlier segments of this. You need to get lots of a cyber assistance from a really good IT support group. So I need an IT design team. I need a business unit design team. Your job as the designer is to design the exercise plan, to validate it, design all the injects with your design teams, uh, things like an AV agenda, all of that. And why you also need, as I talked about in the earlier segments, is a really good group of simulators to basically keep the all of the team honest because we need to make sure that they, nobody fixes things that are not fixable. Uh, and that's really important. I think this is so, so critical. And I would strongly encourage all of you to sign up and actually develop a ransomware exercise soon.
And I'm happy to keep chatting about that with you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's so much more to it too, because I was just having the chat um, the other day about this. And they were talking about ransomware and doing a cybersecurity exercise. They already had one last year. And they were saying, now we, you know, we business continuity needs to have an exercise. And I said, well, hold on. Why didn't you include them as part of your cyber one? Sure. And what do you mean? I said, well, I said, a cyber exercise can trigger your business continuity plans. It obviously triggers your crisis management. I said, potentially ITDRP, depending on how it all fills out. Right. I said, so why didn't you include them in that one? I said, it's just, it doesn't have to be just the security department. I said, it can never, so it can never be just the security yeah. department. <clears throat> I said, so many others are involved. Uh, everyone's know, involved. involved. <laughs> you know, I and said that's, that's the key thing is everyone's involved. A, a ransomware yeah. attack or a, or a significant cybersecurity breach, that's going to affect everybody. And yeah. we need to branch out beyond just having this for the IT department. It yeah. is a company-wide issue. I and, I told him, and I told him it can happen the other way around. I said, you could have a business user all of a sudden having an issue. And as the, the investigation starts happening, you find out you've got a ransomware attack. Right. You just haven't received the message yet. Right. right. And you're under attack. Right. So uh, I, I said, you can't just do it in isolation. So we have come to the end, Regina. Not only that, we actually came to the end of our cyber our uh, cyber ransomware exercise after I'm three thrilled episodes. after three segments, right? <laughs> Took us three episodes to get through it, but we got I it. Tell you. I tell you. Yay. Lot, lots of great information there. I really hope people pay attention and go back and listen to the uh, other two episodes for uh, May and uh, April, um, because there's a lot of good information there. And uh uh, of course, they can reach out to you if they have any questions as well. So, absolutely. So, thank you once again, Regina. You know, as uh, always, uh, Alex. Lovely spending uh, um, every month with you. Yes, and so now we've got a clean slate for July when we Ooh, meet. In I'm July, excited. You know, we'll probably talk about the diseases, and hopefully, none of them have escalated. I but, hope. Uh, you know, we we got a clean slate. No. For, for a change. It rarely happens. <laughs> it rarely does. So yay, I'm really excited. <laughs> so thanks, Regina. Have a great day. And everybody listening and watching, stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you here next week.